Bendel decision. Where it stands at the moment is that the AAT have said that UPE is not alone and therefore doesn't have Division 7A consequences. That is directly inconsistent with what the ATO has been saying for the last 14 years. You are listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to episode 406 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to DocuSign for sponsoring this episode. Today, let's talk about the Bendel case. The AAT has just ruled about UPEs to companies and this is a fundamental change to what has been happening so far since 2009. As you know, since 2009, whenever a trust distributed to a corporate beneficiary and didn't pay, you had a Division 7A issue. And I say had and distributed, I use the simple past because the AAT has ruled now against the ATO on this. How and on what basis? That is what Andrew Henshaw of Velocity Legal in Melbourne will discuss with you in this episode. Probably a bit of a celebrity now. It is possible when you're going to the AAT to request hearings to be confidential. And it, it's quite often done. So you see case citation with just a couple of different letters like XYZ versus the commissioner but wasn't done for this matter. And I admire his courage, you know, to go against the AAT on a matter that has been kind of generally accepted as law. So I'm quite impressed with his tenacity and courage. Yeah, well, I mean, to your point, whether it's been accepted or not, I guess we'll go into that in a bit of detail. But but yes, it's going against the grain, uh, or at least the ATO's grain. So, you know, full credit to Mr. Bendel, for ta having the courage to take that action. So let's talk about how it has been done until now. A trust distributes income to a corporate beneficiary, usually a so-called bucket company, but the money actually doesn't follow the uh, income distribution. And so a UPE comes into place. And what has been the rule until now regarding this UPE? To answer that, I'm going to go back in history all the way back to 1997, and then we'll work forward from there because were missing context otherwise. So 1997 was when Division 7A was first introduced. Prior to that time, there were very weak rules dealing with companies lending money to shareholders, but they were very weak. So Division 7A was introduced and over time, there has been a number of changes to Division 7A. The most relevant changes to Division 7A for our purposes are, firstly, there were provisions known as Section 109UB. And these were the first provisions that addressed unpaid present entitlements. They weren't particularly well drafted and there were some loopholes with those provisions. So what happened is in 2004, the government introduced a new subdivision to Division 7A and the reason that they introduced that was to deal with some problems with Section 109UB. And that new subdivision is Subdivision EA. What EA does is it is concerned about situations where an unpaid present entitlement exists. So 
trust has made a company presently entitled. But then what the trust has done is the money's moved somewhere else. So it hasn't stayed in the trust or the company. It's gone to the individual. And that's what subdivision EA is getting at. That was 2004. We then moved forward. And at this time, it was accepted generally that if you had a trading trust and wanted to cap tax at corporate rate, that trading trust could make a company presently entitled. And the company's failure to call on that entitlement was not an issue for Division 7A purposes. In 2009, and specifically the date is the 16th of December 2009, the commissioner first aired his views that an unpaid present entitlement between a trust and a company where everyone's related parties, the failure of that company to call on its entitlement is the company providing financial accommodation to the trust and therefore the company is making a quote-unquote loan to the trust and therefore we have Division 7A and that's where you get the tax ruling, the practice statement and as you said, Heidi, you've got to treat it as if it's on, you've got to put in place Division 7A loan agreements, principal and interest payments and, and all the rest of it and if you don't, then you will have a deemed dividend. Good. And this 2004 rule, you know, disregarding what happened in 2009, but just looking at 2004 with subdivision EA, that was just for trading trusts. So, for example, if you had an investment trust and the money stayed within the trust so and new investment was purchased with that money, would that also count as a trading trust? and hence be okay under the 2004 rules? Or does trading trust mean you actually need to run a business? So the, the use of the trading trust term was a bit misleading. None of the rules draw any steep distinction between the, the activities of the discretionary trust. What happened in 2004 is legislation was put into Division 7A that specifically concerned unpaid present entitlement. And Perhaps it's best just to give it an explanation of how this subdivision EA works and worked. It hasn't changed since then. So what subdivision EA at its heart does is it says if a company is presently entitled, so it uses the words presently entitled, to money from a trust, and then what the trust does is the money's led, let's say, to the individual who controls the whole structure. So trust has made a company presently entitled, hasn't paid the money, and then the trust has lent money to someone else, the individual. What subdivision EA then says is, for the purposes of Division 7A, you treat it as if that private company was the one who lent the money to the individual, even though the private company didn't actually lend any money to the individual. We had three parties. We had the trust, present entitlement to the company, and then the trust lent the money. But what EA says is where that's present, treat it as if the company lent the money. That means you have a Division 7A problem anyway with a present entitlement if the money doesn't stay in the trust. So that means under EA, if the money stays within the trust, then you don't have an issue under EA. 
Correct. You don't have an issue under EA. And before 2009, it was accepted that you don't have any issue. Fast forward to 2009, late 2009, and then in 2010 with the rulings, the commissioner said that the mere fact that the company has failed to call upon its entitlement means that the comp means generally in a in a family setting that the company is providing financial accommodation to the trust that is within the meaning of a loan therefore unless it's put on principal and interest terms within a certain time period or one of those other options is taken you have Division 7A consequences. So before 2009, you only had an issue if the money left the trust and was lent to somebody else. And after 2009, you have an issue whenever you have a UPE to a company, no matter where the money went. We'll come to the Bendel case in a second, but EA, even before this Bendel case, is still relevant for situations where you have a trust with pre-2009 UPEs because... When the commissioner came out with his views about, in 2009, a concession was given to UPEs that arose before the 16th of December 2009. And essentially that concession was that those would not be treated as financial accommodation or loans. But you still have EA sitting there. So with your pre-2009 UPEs, it's not like you could just do whatever you want. You still have those provisions. Yes, because even if the 2009 rules hadn't come in, you still have a potential issue with UPEs depending on where the money went. Correct. And then, so for the last 14 years, 13 years, 14 years, most people have sort of gone off the ATO's rulings as being, I mean, they might disagree with them, they might not have a view on it, but most have complied with those rulings. In general. Good. And so now comes Mr. Stephen Bendel. Yeah. And, and just before we get to Mr. Stephen Bendel, it, it's worth adding that in 2022, the commissioner updated those views about UPEs. Substantively, big picture sense, nothing really changed. There were some changes on the edges, but essentially the commissioner reconfirmed those views that a UPE is financial accommodation and therefore it's a loan, and therefore Division 7A. Now we come forward to the case of Bendel. So what did he do? Did he actually not set up Division 7A loan agreements for all of his trusts? Just to recap, Mr. Stephen Bendel is an accountant, so he had a vast amount of clients with trust and corporate beneficiaries. Did he just use one trust as an example to test this, or did he go all in and didn't do any Division 7A agreements for any of his clients? To answer your question, Heidi, I don't know what he did for his own clients. It's not mentioned in any of the material. The case concerns the taxpayer's own affairs. Oh, I see. So he also had a trust. Yes, correct. Yeah, it wasn't wasn't anything to do with, with his clients because if, if it was a client, then it would be the client's tax issue and, and they would be the ones debating with the ATO. I mean, they would do it through their advisor, but... A very good point. Also, the clients probably wouldn't appreciate being dragged in front of the AAT. Yes, good, perfect. So it was his own trust and he didn't do a Division 7A agreement. 
Do you know if he didn't do the Division 7A agreement out of stubbornness or did he forget and hence had a problem to solve? How did this come about? So the general, I'll answer that question. The general facts were we had a discretionary trust, which was called the 2005 trust. And over a number of years, it made distributions to a company who was called Glewen Investments. Basically, we had a discretionary trust, which had income. And it made distributions over a number of years, generally to a bucket company. And there was no action taken in respect of Division 7A. I'm speculating somewhat as to the reasons why, but I think I can recall from the decision that it was more to do with, it was less of a calculated decision and more of a Oversight. An oversight or a busyness or, or or something rather than as a deliberate, I'm going to challenge, I'm going to be the one challenging the ATO. So there were a couple of issues in this AAT decision. So it's Administrative Appeals Tribunal. And just to make the point, if a taxpayer is dissatisfied with an ATO decision, it can object to that decision firstly, which is essentially an internal review process. And then if it is still dissatisfied, the taxpayer can do one of two things. It can lodge a review in the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, or it can appeal the decision to federal court. So essentially, they can go to court or they could go to the tribunal. And there's different reasons why you might want to do one of those over the other. For example, with the AAT, it's a less formal process. You can be self-represented. AAT can stand in the shoes of the commissioner remake discretions and things like that. And the court is uh, more of a formal process. So there was an audit, there was a review, there was an objection. At the end of that, there's a big tax bill and the case was uh, appealed to the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. So the core issue in the case was whether or not the entitlements that were unpaid, which the company had those rights to against the trust, whether that was enough to constitute a loan for the purposes of Division 7A. The commissioner's arguments were essentially, yes, it does, essentially for the reasons stated in the various tax rulings. And the taxpayer's arguments was, no, it's not within the meaning of that term. Oh, really? That's all? He just said, no, that's not the, in, within the meaning of a loan? Sorry, uh, I'm giving a summary, but... There was there was extensive arguments made about whether or not it should be within within that term or not. If the ATO were correct, the really interesting point is, so if the ATO were correct, the company has made a loan to the trust and no action was taken, so therefore you have a, a deemed dividend. That increases the income of the trust for the year and the trust in general, distributed income back to that bucket company. So you have a constant circle. Well, not only do you have a constant circle, but you have a deemed dividend, which is it starts off at the trust, is included in the trust's income, but through how Division 6 works, that is then attributed to whoever the trust makes its distributions to which was the company itself. So in layman's terms, the company has a deep dividend to itself, which sounds ridiculous, 
but that's if you interpret everything correctly that's sort of that's where 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 you get to yes and it makes sense what you're saying makes sense so then i wonder how come we did this for 14 years when it actually doesn't make sense to have a deemed dividend to itself the main issue in the case was an interpretation issue does an unpaid present entitlement is that financial accommodation and it all t- it all turns on is that arrangement so the the failure of the company to call on the money is that financial accommodation so it's really an interpretation issue so the the AAT had to make a call on what does that not what does that term mean but does that term include this type of arrangement so it's very clear if i lend money to you Heidi i've made a loan it's it's you know money's been exchanged but if you've bestowed some sort of right upon me and all I've done is just failed to ask for the money, have I made a loan to you? That's the question because that's the same thing as an unpaid present entitlement. Someone's bestowed a right on you and you haven't done anything about it. And the summary of what the AAT said was for various reasons, the interpretation should be taken that the term financial accommodation and therefore the term loan does not include the failure of a private company to call upon their unpaid present entitlement. So in other words, a UPE is not financial accommodation and it's not a loan and therefore you don't have Division 7A consequences if all you are doing is the money stays in the trust and the company has failed to call upon its entitlement. So if this decision stands... Then we go back to the situation we had before 2009, where a UPE to a company, to a corporate beneficiary is okay as long as the money stays within the trust. Correct. Absolutely. It's sort of like 2009 never happened, 2010 never happened, all this. It's a bit more complicated than that. But yes, we sort of go back to to prior to 2009. And one of the big reasons why the tribunal made this decision was they were very conscious that in 2004, this subdivision EA was introduced. And there's various statements in the explanatory memorandum about the purpose of subdivision EA. And in summary, it was specifically introduced to capture unpaid present entitlements. So court said, well, if the ATO is correct, Uh, on all the things it said since 2009, then subdivision EA really doesn't do much. It's very limited to think up a situation where it could apply. The legislation specifically inserted these provisions to capture unpaid present entitlements. So that is supportive of taking a view that without those provisions, it doesn't cover unpaid present entitlements. Does that make sense? The main takeaway I got is that as long as the money stays within the trust, you don't have to worry about the UPE. And that's correct. You know, back to the situation we had before 2009. Yeah. And then even if the money does leave the trust, the EA rules, subdivision EA rules are slightly different in how they work, timings, things like that. But yes, you would have to think about those. And, and I guess it's sort of where to from here is the real interesting part of this. But but just because you you did this add-on now, it does the rule of some stand that as long as the money stays in the trust, it's okay? Or are there also scenarios where the money could leave the trust and it's still okay? 
it generally would need to stay in the trust. If, if it leaves the trust and goes somewhere else, then subdivision EA would generally say- Division 7A dividend. Yeah, well, you treat it as if the company is the one lending the money to that other person. So by leaving the trust, if it was leaving the trust to go to somebody who's not an associate or a shareholder, then that would be okay. But if it's going to the individual, then yes, you're still going to have an issue. But your, your issue is going to be a different issue because the law says treat it as if the company's making the loan, not the trust. So even the parties to the agreement are different. Yes. And so if the company makes the loan to a third party, then it's fine. You don't have a Division 7A issue. So you basically just, yeah, you basically just go back to the company. You pretend the company's making those payments and then you see how it would flesh out under Division 7A. Yeah. Yep. Before we continue, here's a quick word from our sponsor, DocuSign. Last year, our accounting firm was hacked. Okay, I'm going to admit it. My password was password. I thought about going back to old school paperwork, but then I heard about DocuSign. It has the highest global security standards with round-the-clock activity tracking, keeping digital agreements confidential. So now we're on DocuSign and no one's cracking my password. And no, it's not one, two, three, four. Sign up for your free trial at docusign.com.au. Next time, DocuSign. So that leads into probably the most interesting part is, is where to from here. So, so for Mr. Bendel, he's had a decision. It's favorable to him on that issue. There were a few other issues, but it's favorable to him on that issue. It is open to the ATO to now appeal that decision if it wishes. And if it did, it would be going into federal court, potentially all the way through full federal court and potentially even high court. But the ATO doesn't need to they, – they, it's open to the ATO to choose to do that or not. Yes, but my gut feeling is they will because if they don't fight this one, then it means that investment trusts – that want to reinvest any income and also trading trusts that want to reinvest any income can do so without any problem as long you know as long as the money doesn't leave the trust you don't have to pay out the UPE it makes a big difference the big decisions i would be surprised if the ATO doesn't fight this i think so too the reason i made the point is that various commentators a few commentators have made the point that a tribunal decision is not a judicial decision. It's a tribunal decision. It is not binding on, in a technical perspective, it is not binding on the commissioner. It is at least theoretically possible that the, and I, I'll come to my own thoughts in a second, but it is at least theoretically possible that the commissioner would simply say, I'm going to stay to stick to my views, and that is a tribunal decision that is not binding on me. Now, I don't think that would happen. And I don't think it would happen for a number of reasons. Firstly, even if the decision is not strictly binding, I, I would think that the commissioner sort of has a duty to really to, to, to challenge this up the chain um, and resolve it. And then to your point, Heidi, there would be a number of tax agents and clients who will take this existing decision and say, well, this tribunal was said it was fine for... Mr. Bendel, so I think it's fine for me. I'm aware that maybe it will get appealed, maybe it won't, but I've got to make a decision. I've got to advise my client, what do I, uh, what do, I do? At the moment, I've got a tribunal decision that says it's not, 
it's not within Division 7 out. Yes, and that's why the ATO has to go to court. I think in a in practical sense, yes. I don't think, I think it would be a really poor look. They would either need to challenge the decision or they would need to withdraw their ruling because even if it's not a, a court authority because it's an AAT decision, it's the best that we've got. There is no court decision that says that the UPE is financial accommodation for Division 7A purposes. So they, they really sort of have to. This will and has to come to its head. And if they didn't, then there'd probably be hundreds or thousands of taxpayers who will take this alternative view and yeah, the ATO, instead of dealing with this one case, is dealing with thousands of cases on the same issue. Yes, because I, uh, in preparation for this episode, I read that there are actually 971,000 trusts in Australia with corporate beneficiaries, almost a million trusts with corporate beneficiaries that are all affected by this AAT case. Yeah, absolutely correct. So uh, the really interesting things are now what happens from here, as in this will take some time to resolve, assuming the ATO, ATO appeals. Let's just assume that they will. But it's going to be some time before that appeal is heard and decided. That decision, if it's unfavorable to the ATO or the taxpayer, may be then appealed again. And we might go all the way to the High Court on this. And what, to, what does that look like in terms of a time frame? Let's say two years. So what do we do in the meantime? What do you do in the meantime? It's a good question. Well, I think the first thing is the, the, there may be some ATO guidance coming, but I suspect the ATO guidance would probably be, we think our views are still correct until a court determines otherwise. Point, the first sort of decision is really for trusts that have made companies presently entitled for the income year ending 2022, no, 2022. So for 2022, if that unpaid president entitlement is still sitting there and nothing's been done, then under the commissioner's views, the clients have until May, assuming their lodgement date is May, May 2024 to put in place a loan agreement or, or pay it. You get a bit longer for, for UPEs under the, under the existing views. Yes, you're right, because the 2022 company tax return was due in May 23. And so if nothing happened by the time this company tax return was lodged, meaning they didn't do a pay run or they didn't just declare a dividend, then they should have done a Division 7A loan agreement by May 23. And if they haven't done that, then there is a deemed dividend. The dates are not right. I could just explain the point. Why the issue is for an unpaid present entitlement from 30 June 2022 is that under the ATO's existing views, they say that a UPE doesn't become a loan straight away. It only becomes a loan after a period of time in which nothing's been done. So if a company is made presently entitled on 30 June 2022, then it becomes a loan around about June 2023. So it becomes a loan at that time. And therefore, you then have, so you have a loan made during FY 2023. And then that needs to be dealt with by the company's lodgement date for FY 2023. So that's why it's May 2024. If the company was just 
advancing money, as in cold hard dollars out of its bank account, then there's no timing lag. It's just the day the money leaves the bank account. But because it's a UPE, you get a bit longer. Yes. So just a normal division seven or just a normal loan from the company to a shareholder, let's say that was 30th of June 2022, that would have had to be dealt with by May 23 by the time the company tax return is lodged. But because this is a UPE and not just a straight out loan from a company, it only becomes a Division 7A issue by June 23, so a year later. And then it needs to have been dealt with by May 24. So you basically get an extra year with the UPE. You get an extra year. Yeah, yeah. You get an extra year. And that's probably the first decision point around, okay, that, that date is only six months away and possibly earlier for some that might have an earlier lodgement date. What are we going to do? Are we going to pay it? Are we going to put in place a complying loan agreement? Or are we going to say the AT decision says that this is okay, therefore we don't need to do anything? That's a hard decision to make because that's ultimately a decision the client needs to make and they need to be fully informed about their options, their risks, where this is all at. They're going to be uh, complex conversations. Can you start a Division 7A loan now, you know, do a Division 7A agreement? And if the ATO loses in the federal court or the high court in the end, when it is resolved, can you then just tear up the Division 7 loan agreement and then just not worry about it going forward? I mean, that's an interesting point. I guess once you make that agreement, it is a, a, a contract or a deed between the parties. So needs to be a abided by. Yeah, I think you probably need to abide by it or maybe if you had some fancy drafting or you could possibly try to deal with it, but I think once you do commit to that written agreement it becomes harder to back out of it. I think it's worth thinking about further, but whether you could put something in the agreement saying, well, like a cancellation clause. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The other interesting situation is for UPEs that are ongoing at the moment. So, which ties into this point that, okay, what about EUPEs from FY21, 2020, 2019, 18? You might have those agreements for those. Can we resile from them? Uh, and then on, on top of that, you have the situations where people have done the seven or 10-year um, interest options or even the sub-trust arrangements. So, it, it, pretty much everyone with a with UPE is going to have to uh, have some real serious uh, thoughts and deliberations about what to do until such time as this this saga is resolved. And then on top of that, we have always the possibility that legislation would come in to change it as well. Administrative Appeals Tribunal. Wasn't there something at some stage with... Morrison, when Morrison was still prime minister, where some appeals tribunal was, you know, eradicated, resolved, liquidated. Wasn't there something? Was that our AAT or was that a different AAT? Yeah, so I'm not as familiar about this, but yes, to your point, there was an announcement in December 2022, that the AAT would be abolished and replaced with a new federal administrative review body. 
but the AAT will continue operating until that new body is established. And once that body is established, any cases will transition over to the new body. The whole reason was apparently the government made this decision due to a belief that a lot of the appointments in the AAT by the Morrison government were politically motivated. So they're basically sort of think their thinking is we sort of need to wipe the slate clean, have people reapply for their positions. That's essentially what's happened. I don't know what kind of time frame we're sort of looking at for that. And so is the aim to clean it off politics altogether or is the aim to just make it more compliant to, to a different party than the Liberals? I, I <laughs> Good question. I, I think The aim is not to, as I understand, to change how the AAT works in a big picture sense. I believe the aim is to make everyone apply for their positions again, because I think it is difficult once someone is appointed to remove them. So that means all the judges, or all, they're probably not called judges because it's not a court. Members, yeah. Are members. So that means all the members at the AAT are basically don't know whether they still have a job next year. So they will all be treading very lightly and trying to move, smooth things. Yeah, I think that I think that's correct. Yeah. Okay. It'll be interesting to see how that works out. It's <laughs> yeah, another thing to overlay on all of this. We've talked about the Bendel decision. We've given some context to Division 7A, which is really necessary to understand the Bendel decision. Where it stands at the moment is that the AAT have said that a, a UPE is not alone and therefore doesn't have Division 7A consequences. That is directly inconsistent with what the ATO has been saying for the last 14 years. This is going to play out. It's going to take some time. But in the meantime, clients with UPEs are still going to have to make decisions about how to manage those. Do they have a Division 7A exposure or not? Velocity Legal in Melbourne. So the Bender case suggests a big change, but we are really still in limbo at the moment. The ATO is not bound by this AAT ruling, so we are probably better off if we just continue as before and assume that a UPE to a company is a problem we need to fix. And then we wait for the Bender case to make its way through the courts until there is a binding court ruling or until the ATO changes its position. In the next episode, we will go back to foreign trusts. The next episode will be episode 407 and we will go back to foreign trusts. In preparation, if you can, listen to episodes 399 and 400 about foreign trusts, where we already cover the basics, mainly the residency rules and how section 99B plays out. I think listening to 399 and 400 will set the stage for you to really be well prepared for episode 407 because in episode 407 we don't go back through these fundamentals but continue on from there. So if you can listen to 399 and 400, that's great. But either way, next episode 407, we will discuss foreign trusts and the implications. So in the next episode, we will talk with Bradley Murphy and Darren Casserell of Murphy Tax in Sydney. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to DocuSign for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.